It's Easter. This will be our rather inappropriate tribute, but there it is. <laughs> so happy Easter, everyone. Glad to see you this morning. Make sure that's true. <laughs> All right, this morning's lecture, Launchpad, inspired by uh, SpaceX 5 or whatever that guy's name is, doing amazing things. <clears throat> Forgiveness is the cash, Hafi says. Forgiveness is the cash that you need. <laughs> All the other kinds of silver really just buy strange things. Everything has its music. Everything has genes of God inside. But learn from those courageous, addicted lovers of glands and opium and gold. Look, they cannot jump high or laugh long when they are whirling. And the moon and the stars become sad when the tender light is used for night war. Forgiveness is part of the treasury you need to craft your falcon wings and to return to your true realm of divine freedom. To craft your falcon wings, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Crafting falcon wings to be free. This idea of a launch pad, you know, where to begin, where do we start with life, with our spiritual life, with, with our experience of God. And honestly, it starts only in grace and ironically ends in the same place. But we don't really understand that. We talk about it a lot, the grace of God, living in grace, saved by grace, grace alone, swimming in grace, knowing grace. But what is that? What is it to have the free and unmerited favor of God? It's a terrifying thought for most people. You hear this idea of God having done everything. You know, every single avatar that has come has said that. I mean, Jesus said, I came to set you free. Takor said, you know, I have done everything for you. Mother says, I am your mother. Fate will not dare to, to, to lose a soul that I have taken as my child. Again and again, we're promised this free and unmerited favor of God. But how does it look? Because our greatest fear is, oh my gosh, if, if I don't do anything, what will happen? Does that, mean that, does that mean I can go on, you know, stealing from Kmart and... <laughs> You know, and, uh, and uh, smacking my, my friends around. Is that what it means? How does it work? So we're going to dig into that this morning to kind of look at grace, where it comes from, what it does, what its role is. <laughs> uh, plumb all the depths, actually. So we should walk out enlightened this morning by Mother's Grace. <laughs> In the complete works, Swamiji says, when the avatara comes, when that incarnation of God comes, then with him are born liberated persons as helpers in his world play. Only avatars have the power to dispel the darkness of a million souls and give them salvation in one life. This is known as grace. Do you understand? Disciple. Yes, sir. But what is the way for those who have not been blessed with the sight of him? Swamiji. The way for them is to call on him. Calling on him, many are blessed with his vision. They can see him in human form, just like we did, and obtain his grace. 
So it's a promise for all of us. It's a gift for all of us. Grace is manifested through an incarnation. It's the part of every play. Whenever God comes, that's his primary message. I I love you. (laughs) I love you for the sake of loving you. I like who you are. I I like what you will become. I'm thrilled at the idea of your realization. It's that kind of intimacy that's not born of our action, that kind of reaching out that's not dependent on our performance doesn't doesn't perform doesn't matter how 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 we've responded or how how we've been in our life holy mother says we've been reading every thursday these quotes of holy mother and this week she was talking about herself and the master and oh my gosh was it filled of some beautiful promises in there and one of the things that holy mother said She said, now that you are with your mother, what's the need of so much japa and meditation? I indeed am doing everything for you. Now eat and live merrily, free from all care. This is that that promise of grace. Now you read that and you think, wow, gosh, I can just (laughs) live merrily, free, and, uh, and and have fun from all care. And uh, when you think about that, at fun, it looks like this great, easy, easy-go-lucky life, and it really is. But there's a deep learning necessary in what she's saying, because she says, now eat and live merrily. That's the easy part. We can meet, uh, eat and live merrily. But she doesn't say only when things are good. She's saying live merrily. That's the instruction. Be cheerful. Be glad. See everything through the eyes of this grace that I've given you. All things are taken care of. I will never do anything to you that's not for your own benefit. So you have to look at everything in your life as being to your benefit, the pain and the hurt and the challenges. That's the first part, but that's so that you can eat and live merrily, free from all care. Free from all care. Now, we like to take that just meaning the things we worry about. No, free from all care. It's a call to absolute surrender. It's a call to letting go completely in mother's presence. You have no worries. Nothing is your duty now. You live now because of love, right? You live now because of freedom. You live now because you've been allowed to set down all of the heavy, everything, not just the heavy stuff. You've been able to set down everything. That's the launch pad for your spiritual life. That's where it begins is knowing that it's already finished, that it's already accomplished. From that point on, everything that you do is a a struggle to accept that grace, to build the kind of faith that allows you to depend on that kind of grace, to build the framework of purity in your life so that you can see that grace and watch it manifest in your life. Thakur says, Ramakrishna says, his famous thing about grace, the winds of grace are always blowing. It is for you to raise your sails to catch it. So the winds of grace, it's everywhere. I mean, this, really, I like to think of the things of this world as grace. The fact that you burn your hand on the stove is grace. It teaches you not to leave your hand on the stove, hopefully, you know. Growing old is my favorite one to talk about because I'm experiencing it in such a wonderful way, <laughs> a delightful way. Growing old is a great grace because it reveals the truth to you. 
You know, if it wasn't if it wasn't for your body melting and becoming hideous and looking like it's going to fall at any moment, you wouldn't give the thing up. You'd be clutching onto it forever. It's like, oh, I love this thing. <laughs> In the end, it's an act of complete run. Like, oh God, okay, take it. <laughs> God, get that thing out of here. It's I've been sick for years. I can hardly walk. Everything hurts. You know. So God's grace is in that. God's grace is in age. God's grace is in the ability to change. Your ability to learn is grace. You know, every morning in our worship, the first, the first person, the first ideal that we worship is grace. God, God, God as the Satguru, the teacher in all things. What is, what is teaching without grace? Grace is what allows you to hear it and to modify your life. Grace is that thing that allows you to not have to do the wrong thing over and over and over again without learning from it. Grace is reading the scriptures and being able to be touched by what it says. Grace is, is looking at your, your child and seeing a reflection of God there, not just a thing, not just an object. Grace, grace is, is being able to get up in the morning again after how many mornings of how many days and doing what seems like the same thing over and over and over again. Why? Because love is hidden in that day somewhere. Love is hidden in that day. And grace is your ability to find it. Your ability to touch it. Your ability to se celebrate it. And, and to, to increase it. Grace is the good feeling that you have when you do something right. Something according to your nature. When you give something to somebody when you're generous to somebody in traffic and let them in, you know, even after they've honked at you. <laughs> Grace is, is letting that person in front of you in the line, you know, who you both arrived at the same time with your baskets and you're like, well, I was really first. <laughs> I was just behind the rack over there. But you let them in. That's Grace. Why? Because you see God when those things happen. A lot of times we just throw it away as a small feeling of happiness or a little bit of joy or a little bit of thought of ego-based, how good of a person you are, but you're really experiencing God at that moment. What you're feeling is the presence of the divine. That's grace in our lives. It's everywhere around us. So we want to touch that. We want to find that grace. We want to experience that grace. And so we're going to find out what does it mean when Thakur says to raise your sails. The master starts by saying, one thinks of God through his grace. So everyone think of God real quick. There. There's your demonstration of grace. You can think of God. How many people in the world this morning do not have an ideal? Don't have that assurance, don't have a knowledge or an experience of inner life. You know, are waking up in all kinds of suffering. Maybe even some here. But even then that suffering, the thought of God, the thought that there is an ideal, that there's a perfection that's accessible to you. That's grace. Nanda, who was a young man who was sitting with the master, said, but how can we obtain God's grace? Has he really the power to bestow grace? The master smiling, I see. You think as the intellectuals do. One reaps the results of one's actions. That's a surprising statement right there. So you think like the intellectuals, people who are bound in mind, right? What is, what is it that he's thinking? That one reaps the results of one's actions. That you, karma is an absolute. You have to experience it. The next four words are going to be very surprising. Of course, you've probably read it a million times. 
give up these ideas. Your takor tells you to give up the idea that one has to reap the, the, the fruits of one's karma. He says, I see you think as the intellectuals do, one reaps the results of one's actions. Give up these ideas. The effect of karma wears away if one takes refuge in God. I prayed to the Divine Mother with flowers in my hand. Here, Mother, take your sin, and here, take your virtue. I don't want either of these. Give me only real love. Here, Mother, take your good, take your bad. I don't want any good or bad. Give me only real love for you. Here, Mother, take your dharma, take your adharma. I don't want any of your dharma or adharma. Give me only real love for you. Here, Mother, take your knowledge, take your ignorance. I don't want any of your knowledge or ignorance. Give me only real love for you. Here, Mother, take your purity, take your impurity. Give me only real love for you. So we see here the Master gives you a promise. He says that your spiritual life, once you've accepted your ideal, once you've accepted Takwar, once you've accepted Jesus, once you've accepted Krishna, any of these great manifestations of the divine, it's finished. The goal is reached. It's done. You lay it on them. So now it's yours, like Mother says, to, to, to eat and live merrily, to, be, to, to reap your great joy from that by not forgetting it, by remembering it at every moment, letting it deepen within and understand what it means to accept such an amazing and beautiful thing, and then to be free from all care by what? Doing exactly what Takur is doing, to stand in front of Mother, who has given you everything, and say, I don't want your wealth, I don't want your poverty, I want only real love for you. I don't want fame, I don't want name, I don't want fortune, I don't want their opposites. I only want love for you. That's what it is to live free from care. To lay everything down, say, God, I'm not looking for anything. You've already given me anything I could ever want. The very purpose of my life is fulfilled in you. That's enough for me. That's living free from all care. Not letting the mind and the body and the ego determine your need, your want, your lack, your struggle, your payment, <laughs> your karma. But to lay all of those things down, to remember the gift of life, to, to enjoy it, and to, to grow in understanding what it means. To deepen the faith that allows you to accept it without any reservation inside. How do we go there? The master knew Hari's passion for Vedanta, but he did not wish any of his disciples to become dry ascetics or mere bookworms. Okay? <laughs> he doesn't want any of you to become dry ascetics or bookworms. <laughs> so he asked Hari to practice Vedanta in life by giving up the unreal and following the real. But it is not so easy, Ramakrishna said, to realize the illusoriness of this world. Study alone does not help one very much. The grace of God is required. Mere personal effort is futile. A man is a tiny creature, after all, with very limited powers. But he can achieve the impossible if he prays to God for his grace. Whereupon the master sang a song in praise of grace, and Hari was profoundly moved and began to shed tears. The master, yes, love for God is the one essential thing, to be sure. 
God exists in all beings. Who then is a devotee? He whose mind dwells on God. But this is not possible as long as one has egotism and vanity. The water of God's grace cannot collect on the high mound of egotism. It runs down. I am a mere machine. Yes. So see, grace is not something to be attained. You don't have to be good enough for it. All of spiritual life is lived in response to grace, not in quest for grace. Your spiritual life is a response and not a quest. A response to the love of God. A response to the intimacy that God extends every time he manifests and comes to be with us. To give us freedom and assurance that he is our own, very own, that he's never far. The grace of God is required to be able to pull any meaning from the scriptures. You can read the scriptures and learn nothing from them. (laughs) There were people that visited Takor and didn't see anything of his delight. Saw him as being some crazy old guy, you know, who had some weird delirium that kept throwing him into these weird ecstatic states. You know, you can approach God that way and not see the beauty of it, you know. When I went to uh, India in 2012, my plan at that time was to live there for two years. Mother had other ideas, which she worked out, but uh, my plan was to be there for two years. And I was in Calcutta living at Vivekananda University, and I had come from San Francisco. (laughs) Now, in San Francisco, you know, I I could look out my bedroom window and see this beautiful vista, the Golden Gate Bridge and the blue sky and just beauty and gorgeous San Francisco everywhere. And I get to Calcutta, and I'm, I'm looking out of my window on a side street and, and some wild dogs that live there and, you know, a, a lot of noise all the time. And I was thinking, you know, I would take my afternoon walks like I did in San Francisco, and I was just getting a little depressed. I was thinking, God, how am I going to be here for two years? For two years, how am I going to do this? Because I was looking at all of the things uh, that, that were meaningless, and so I decided that I would take a camera. So I went down to the, to the local, which was an experience, because I walked into one of these Kmarts in Calcutta, down the Grand Trunk Road there in Garoa, <laughs> which <laughs> I didn't think anything of it until I got in the store and realized that everybody was looking at me like, what are you doing here? Uh, <laughs> buying a camera, of course. So... <laughs> There I bought my camera anyway, which was for spiritual practice because my idea was is that I can't live here for two years walking around noticing all the things that I find offensive or find unbeautiful. I'm going to take my walk every day with my camera and I'm going to look for beautiful things to take pictures of. And I started doing that. And after doing that for about a month, I had found a brand new Calcutta And I put together a series of pictures that's still on the web somewhere, I think, called Colors of Kolkata, with K on all of them. And there was just all the beautiful things that I saw on my walk. And that began to open up a whole new understanding of of the history of that city and and the, the, the forces that brought it to be where it's at. And I began to notice the people very closely. I began to notice how happy the kids were. The kids were always out playing all kinds of weird games that were so fascinating to watch them get into. You know, the way that all the little schoolgirls would huddle together and walk to school in the morning. There was so much beauty around me 
that I was not aware of because I was stuck on one form of beauty. I was stuck on one definition of what is beautiful. And I feel like through that process, you know, which is an acceptance of grace, I'm here, there is beauty here. I need to open my eyes to it. Beauty is not ever absent. It just needs to be learned to see, to be seen. You know, when I moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, I lived here in, in uh, Poolsville in eighth grade not too far from here. And you know how beautiful it is around here. In Poolsville, back then, there was nobody around, just green rolling hills and the Potomac. It was just fantastic. And then my father got transferred to Albuquerque, New Mexico. So we all climbed into the Winnebago and drove out to Albuquerque, New Mexico, which I'd never seen before. The day we drove into Albuquerque, we came up over the bench, which you come out of, of uh, onto the hill and drive into Albuquerque. And I look out, it's, first of all, it's 113 degrees outside. There is not a tree for the 100,000 miles that I can see all around. There's not a single tree. There's no grass anywhere. There's just dirt everywhere. And I was like, I won't share the words I actually used in high school, but <laughs> in my mind, I was like, where are they bringing me? <laughs> where do I have to live? And so I moved into Albuquerque, New Mexico with no grass. The lawn was made of stone, you know, <laughs> 110 degree days in the middle of the desert, nothing but rocks everywhere, no trees. I lived there for three years. And by the time I had left there, I had learned how beautiful the sky is in the Southwest, how big it is, you know, that there's no haze in it whatsoever. You can see for hundreds, literally hundreds of miles. And when the sunset would, when the sun would set in the West, you can, you can never see a, a desert sky light up in those orange and yellows, you know, at sunset. And the mountains called the Sandia Mountain Range. Sandia means watermelon. And the reason they're called watermelon is because the setting sun just sets them on fire with that bright red-orange color in the evening. So beauty is everywhere around you. Grace is what allows you to learn to see it and to appreciate it. Your life is beautiful. Whatever condition it's in, grace will give you the eyes to live it and to reap gold from it. No matter what the limitations are or the obstacles are, you can take them and mint gold from them. The scriptures all promise that. In the Bible, St. Paul says, all things work together for good to those that love God. Holy Mother says the same thing. You know, the love of God has called you. So take the Lord, take this idea, this gift that you've been given, and learn to understand it. Grow in your understanding of what it means to be able to walk in to your shrine room and sit down and leave everything aside. It doesn't matter how you've been living. It doesn't matter the challenges you're facing. It doesn't matter what you think of yourself or what your friends think of you or what your enemies think of you. God is love, and he has given it to you freely with no requirement. Sit and ponder that. Sit and ponder that ideal and let it soak into you. That is what your spiritual life is for. That is why you're repeating God's name over and over if you're doing mantra meditation. That's why you're doing it. There's nothing to accomplish. You're not building a tower. You're just sitting there in the divine presence of love and trying to understand how deep that is, how beautiful that is, and how empowering that is. How does one receive this grace of God? Jagopal asks, so Thakur gives him yet another answer. Constantly, you have to chant the name and the glories of God. 
and give up worldly thoughts as much as you can. With the greatest effort, you may try to bring water into your field for your crops, but it will all leak out through the holes in the ridges. Then all your efforts to bring the water by digging a canal will be futile. You will feel restless for God when your heart becomes pure, when your mind is freed from attachment to the things of the world. Then alone will your prayer reach God. A telegraph wire cannot carry a message if it has a break or some other defect. I used to cry for God all alone. With a longing heart, I used to weep. O oh God, where are you? Weeping thus, I would lose all consciousness of the world. So we see that Takur is just telling you, if you want grace, if you want to touch that grace, just chant God's name. He is grace itself. That love and that acceptance is your avenue to understanding grace. Don't forget it. Let the worldliness fall away. Don't look anywhere else for what you need. After this many years in our lives, certainly we can sit and realize that the reason that we keep doing things over and over is because they haven't given us what we needed. They haven't fulfilled us. All the things that we've acquired in our life, all the things that we thought would make us happy, haven't done it. And so we keep looking and we keep trying, keep working out different things. Takwar says, Jesus says, Buddha says, all the world scripture says, it's not out there. It cannot be achieved through the senses because you're infinite. Your nature is infinite and eternal. You cannot find contentment for an infinite and immortal soul in a finite and limited world. You can't do it. You have to go within and touch this boundless love of God, which you are an image of, a reflection of. It's not a metaphor. It is experienceable. Takwar promises, Vivekananda promises, you can see God. You can talk to God. He will talk back to you, physically, if you want, in a real way to you, if you want. But you have to accept that grace that would allow God to do that. You have to put on the coat that makes you pure enough. And that code is his grace. You have to accept it and have no thought of ego when you sit in his presence. No sense of I. Because it will burn. It will burn to have that sense of I. Because he said when we began that if you have that ego, that sense of I as being the operator, the doer, the one responsible for everything that you do, if you do that, the water of God can't accumulate on that mound. You have to be a pitcher, you have to be open, you have to be accepting. There's no sense of I in there. There's only God there. There is only love there. There's no analysis on your part. There's no thought on your part. There's no becoming on your part. There's only being in that presence. When your heart becomes pure, your mind free from attachment to things of the world, you'll feel restless to God. You do that by chanting the names and glories of God, Takor says. You become pure just by your association with perfection, your association with love. When you go to the shrine in the morning and spend your hour in meditation, what are you doing? You're rubbing up against love. <laughs> You're spending time with the beloved. And Holy Mother says in, in, uh, that, that if you run through a, a sandalwood forest, you come out smelling like sandalwood. 
That's all you have to do. Spend time with the beloved. Think of him always. Dream about him. Wonder about him. Ask him a question. And if you can't hear his voice because your mind is still too noisy, then sit there and contemplate what would perfect love say about this? You know, look into the scriptures and say, what does this mean? How does this affect me in the light of perfect love? Learn about it. Can one find grace in sacred books? By reading the scriptures, one may feel at most that God exists. But God does not reveal himself to a man unless he himself dives deep. Only after such a plunge, after the revelation of God through his grace, is one's doubt destroyed. You may read scriptures by the thousands. You may memorize and recite thousands of texts. But unless you plunge into God with yearning of heart, you will not comprehend him. By mere scholarship, you may fool man, but you will not fool God. (laughs) Scriptures and books, what can one achieve with these alone? Nothing can be realized without his grace. Strive with a longing heart for his grace. Through his grace, you will see him, and he will talk to you. So you see, the way is not through books alone. He doesn't say throw them out entirely, but don't look in the books for God. Let them have your, their effect on you. Uh, Prabhudananda used to talk about that in a wonderful way. He says, you know, when you read the scriptures or when you read, he was talking in particular about like something, the Ramayana or the Mahabharata, these great epics. He said, when you read them, he says, don't ask questions about, you know, is it possible that such a thing happened? Or what do you mean a monkey man? What's that? Or if he flew how? He carried a mountain? What is that? He says, you don't read, you don't read scripture that way. You don't read books that way. He said, read, read, read scripture as, as, as if you're just pouring it through the sieve of the mind and then enjoy its residue, what it's done to your mind, what it's been like to experience a moment with Takor. What has it been like to think about the ideal for a moment? How have I been changed? How do I feel inspired? I, I read the Ramayana. I, I have to say... My biggest impression of the Ramayana, I could not imagine a more noble character as a person or as a character than Rama. Every single page, I was just like, he does such noble and beautiful things over and over. Things you haven't even thought of, ways of being noble that have not even occurred to you. And you read that book and what's the effect? You know, you could go through and say, okay, that's how you be noble, that's how you be noble, that's how you be noble. But Swami Prabhupada was saying, no, no, don't, don't take that approach. Just read it. And then sit back and notice the effect. Notice the residue of what that's done to you. Notice the smell of sandalwood that you're acquiring. To be in the company of these noble and charactered people who live and react just the way you always wish you had in every situation. Never driven by ego, never driven by lack or need never driven by want, but always inspired by pure love. Why do we need grace? Why does Takor, God make such a big deal of it? (laughs) In the great master, it says, although the Puranas record many examples of experiences of high spirituality, and though they are not opposed to reason, the human mind cannot accept them fully 
Putting its trust only in knowledge gained by the senses, it cannot fully believe in the existence of entities such as the self or God, liberation, a hereafter, and the like, except through direct realization. Although this is so, an impartial investigator does not discard any experience only because it is rare or uncommon. But taking this stand on facts, he calmly proceeds to collect evidence for and against it. And finally, on the basis of these objective, this objective data, either rejects or accepts it. So you see, our problem is, is that everything that we do is based on mind and body. We've invested our entire life in it. You know, we've learned how it works. We've learned how to kind of master the, the, the search for desires, for pleasures. You know, we know what cookies we like now. <laughs> we figured out what vegetables are better than the other ones all those things. We've learned to think like that. And when somebody asks us a question or when we go look for knowledge, what's the first thing we do? We sit there and go look for a castle of thought somewhere that reveals the truth to us. Dakor's saying it's not there, you know, that it doesn't lay there. That you have to put your trust in a knowledge that's transcendent. That's why even though Vedanta teaches very, very scientific methods for acquiring the knowledge of God, because that final knowledge is of one without a second, it's purely subjective, and you can't demonstrate it to anybody else. They have to go through the exact same experiment, and they have to demonstrate it for themselves. And when it happens for them, they will be in the same boat that you are. You can't give it to somebody. Unfortunately, the experiment is quite extreme. <laughs> it takes a, it takes a lot of longing and a lot of a lot of things that are not always easily available in a laboratory. Once the son of a certain man lay at the point of death, Takor's telling a story here, and it seemed that none could save his life. A sadhu, however, said to the father of the dying son, there is but one hope. If you can get in a human skull the venom of a cobra mixed with a few drops of rainwater under the constellation of the Swati star, your son's life can be saved. All right. Did you get the requirements there? You've got to go get a skull, a human skull, okay? So this will be our, be our uh, treasure hunt for Easter today. Everybody has to go out first and find a human skull. And then you have to get uh, the venom of a cobra mixed with a few drops of rainwater under the constellation of Swati. Then your son's life can be saved. You see, what we've got in front of us is an impossible requirement. Be perfect as I am perfect. That's how Jesus said it. You know, We've got an, imper an, an absolute impossibility in front of us. God realization. The father looked up, the looked up in the almanac and found that the constellation of the Swati would be in the ascendant on the morrow. So he prayed, O Lord, do make it possible that all these conditions come and spare the life of my son. So you see, we've got a magic man here because he didn't just walk away and let his son die. He was given an impossible solution, and he just took it up. Okay, I have to do the impossible. So he goes to the almanac. Okay, when is, the, when is this constellation going to be in its highest form? Oh, tomorrow. And then what's he do? He prays. I can't, can't, <laughs> I can't do this, God. I don't even know if you exist. I have no idea. But either way, I can't do this. And if you do exist, help me out. You know, help me figure this one out. 
O Lord, please make it possible. With extreme earnestness and longing in his heart. Why? Because of great love. Great love for his son. He goes out to take this task with extreme earnestness and longing in his heart, which is exactly how we set out on this task. He set out the following evening and diligently searched in a deserted spot for a human skull. At last he found one under a tree. He held it in his hand and waited for the rain, praying. So it's not even raining. <laughs> He's found the skull. He's on the night that the, that the stars are in the ascendant. And now he's standing there waiting for rain. What's the likelihood, you know, <laughs> that now it's going to rain? But he prays. He prays. And suddenly a shower came, and a few drops of rain were deposited in the upturned skull. The man said to himself, Now I have the water in the skull under the right constellation. Then he prayed earnestly, Grant, O Lord, that the rest may also be obtained. In a short time, he discovered not far from there a toad and a cobra springing to catch it. In the moment, the toad jumped over the skull, followed by the cobra, whose venom fell into the skull. With overwhelming gratitude, the anxious father cried out, Lord, by your grace, even impossible things are made possible. Now I know that my son's life will be saved. Therefore, I say, if you have true faith and earnest longing, you will get everything by the grace of the Lord. All right, so you're faced with an impossible task of knowing God. Every time that we have a group Q&A session, you hear that expressed again and again. Oh, we've got this, how, what, I, this, I, what, how are we going to do this? You know, my mind is so impure. My mind is so restless. My life is so busy. I've got so many things to do. I can't think of God for 10 seconds at a time. That's all right. Yeah, you've got an impossible task. You've got to take a human skull, get a drop of venom and a rain, all these things. Yes. What's your attitude? Okay. I'll do it. It's impossible. My mind is restless. So you sit. What's the first thing you do? You pray with earnestness and sincerity. God, I get it. I can't do this. There's no way I can get all of these things to align perfectly in my life. I'll never have a perfectly still mind. I'll never have a perfectly pure heart. I'll never live a perfect day. I'll never be able to not get angry at my wife when she butters the wrong side of the toast. It just won't happen. Please help me. Please help me. And you go on earnestly, and you do it one step at a time. You sit down and you start your meditation practice with your two minutes, you know, with your sage and your purple hippos, whatever it is that you start with. And you go forward. I say that if you have true faith, faith in what? Faith in the grace of God will come and give you all of the things. See that? This man, he goes out. He goes and he finds a skull. He stands there with the skull. It starts to rain on the, under the right constellation. He sees a toad being chased by a cobra. He gets it all. Now at the end, what did he say? He didn't say, wow, glad I accomplished all of that, man. I'm pretty awesome <laughs> to have arranged all of that, you know? It's like, no, immediately he knows God's grace opened all the gates, made this impossible thing happen in front of me, made it happen. And grace descends on him at that moment. His understanding is opened. He sees, you know, but it's because he refused no as an answer. He refused impossible as a response. He refused dejection in the face of, of a momentous task. 
That's what it is to sit in your moment in the shrine. You're trying something absolutely ridiculous. If you had the gall to think that you were going to sit and realize God on your own effort and your, your piddly little hour or two hours, or even if you're a magnificent six-hour sitter, it's ridiculous for you to think that you will accomplish it, that you will be able to take that kind of control. Why? Because look at, look at our age, most of us. <laughs> How much of our life was spent in, in ruining the mind? How much of our life has been spent on fulfilling our desires? What have we done to our mind? And we think that a little hour or two hours a day is going to fix that. You have to spend, if you were going to do it on your own, you would at least have to spend as many hours fixing your mind as you spent destroying it, you know, indulging it. So if you've been alive 50 years or, you know, like for me, when I, I didn't even know where I was going until I was 35. So that means I would have to do the equivalent of 35 years of meditation just to get up to my age 35, you know. <laughs> So it's an impossible task. So what do you do? You go sit in front of Takor. You know that he's going to do it. You know he can do the impossible. And you sit there and you open yourself up to it. And you pray earnestly. This is going to be amazing, Takor. I can't wait. Give it to me now. <laughs> So it's because we have an impossible task that we have to rely on God, that we have to go for grace, where impossible things are made possible. An actor says to Ramakrishna, Sir, what is the proof that the soul is separate from the body? Master, proof. <laughs> God can be seen. By practicing spiritual discipline, one sees God through his grace. The rishis directly realize the self. One cannot know the truth with, of God through science. Science gives us information only about things perceived by the senses. As, for instance, the material mixed with that material gives such and such a result, and that material mixed with this material gives such and such a result. For this reason, a man cannot comprehend spiritual things with an ordinary intelligence. To understand them, he must live in the company of holy persons. You learn to feel the pulse by living with a physician. So our second way is seeking out holy company, which congratulations. <laughs> Step two is in our hands. Grace has brought you together here today. So hanging out with holy company will teach you about grace as you see each other change and grow. You know, that's been my experience here in the last four years to watch. This place was lovely when I got here, but to sit and watch some of you become really quite beautiful devotees in that space Space and time has been very encouraging by coming and being a part and, and always giving yourselves to this place, always trying to make it better and to make it purer. And it's so appreciated. It's so beautiful to watch. And you've helped me in my spiritual life because of that. Because I see you change, I feel like I can change. I see you make your efforts, I feel like I should make my efforts. I watch your devotions, and I'm inspired to my own devotions. I hear of your dream, and I wish I had one, and I long for, for seeing that. You know, your experiences that you've had, that you've shared, I hear them, and it makes me open up inside and go pray in my shrine. Oh, God, please. Just a little. <laughs> yes, what do you get? Master, some think, some think, oh, I'm a bound soul. I shall never acquire knowledge and devotion. But if one receives the Guru's grace, one has nothing to fear. 
Once a tigress attacked a flock of goats. As she sprang on her prey, she gave birth to a cub and died. The cub grew up in the company of the goats. The goats ate grass, and the cub followed their example. They bleated, so he bleated too. Gradually it grew to be a big tiger, and one day another tiger attacked the flock. It was amazed to see this grass-eating tiger in the middle of it. Running after it, the wild tiger at last seized it, whereupon the grass-eating tiger began to bleat. The wild tiger dragged it to the water and said, Look at your face in the water. It's just like mine. Here's a little meat. Eat it. Saying this, it thrust the meat into its mouth. But the grass-eating tiger would not swallow it and began to bleat again. Gradually, however, it got the taste for blood and came to relish meat. Then the wild tiger said, Now you see there is no difference between you and me. Come along and follow me into the forest. So there can be no fear if the guru's grace descends on one. He will let you know who you are and what your real nature is. If the devotee practices spiritual discipline a little, the guru explains everything to him. Then the disciple understands for himself what is real and what is unreal. God alone is real, and this world, illusory. So you see here, you have to eat meat in order to have salvation. <laughs> All right, maybe not. But uh, he's saying here, you know, that, that, that you receive the Guru's grace, you go looking for this knowledge. You go asking. It, it seems to be that the scriptures are true when they say that the Guru appears at the right time. You know, all you have to do is put it out there in the quiet space of your own home, your own shrine. God, send me someone to show me these things. Give me a guru. Give me a teacher. You know, if you haven't been initiated or, or you haven't found that teacher yet, you just put it out there. The universe provides it at the right time. And actually you come to understand that every single thing that happens to you in a day is the result of your teacher. <laughs> but he'll help you realize that as you go along. You begin to see things that way. You begin to grow. And it's gradual. And what does he give you? That's the funny thing. What's he actually give you in the end? Yourself. The tiger didn't get anything from his guru. What he got to do was lose his ignorance about his nature. So that's the key to this. You're not trying to accomplish anything. You're not trying to build a structure of spirituality in your life. You're just trying to open up and let what is obvious become real within you. To notice where love comes from in you. To notice the things that bring joy and, 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 and contentment to the heart. To pay attention to things going on in your life so that you can stop repeating the same wrong things over and over. To think that next month's model of car, computer, stereo, house, village, whatever vacation is going to give it when it hasn't given it yet. To pay attention to these things, to sit in your shrine and open up to truth. What is it to be alive? Who is it enjoying my eyes and my ears? Who is it that's watching my thoughts? Who is it that's asking who is it? Touch that unchangeable self within. Practice a little spiritual discipline, Thakur says, and he, the guru, will, review, will, will, will reveal everything. He says it again, a devotee can know everything when God's grace descends on him. But if you realize him, you will be able to know all about him. You should somehow meet the master of a house and become acquainted with him. Then he himself will tell you how many houses he owns and all about his gardens and government securities. 
in the Bible, in the book called Titus, which is a letter that St. Paul wrote to his disciple. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So you see, this grace of God is what is your motive for being pure, not for the attainment of grace. You've already got the grace. You've already been saved, as it were. You've already been told that you will see God. Takor says everybody who comes to this place is in their last birth. You know, Mother says those fate would not dare to put those in hell who have come to me for refuge. She makes that promise. Already you've been, you have it all already. You sit and you, you, you become inundated in gratitude because you can't imagine what you've gotten. In the end, it's called grace. Why? Because all the sages, when they've had that experience of knowing that nothing can be added to what they already have, when, when, they, when they feel that ecstasy through every pore and every hair on their body, when they lose that pain of ego, when they come back, if they come back, they understand that there is nothing that could buy that. There is no amount of money that would be equivalent to that experience. That's why it's grace. Because that thing which you are, which you will realize, has a value to you that you have yet to discover. And when you discover it, you will understand there was nothing that, was, that, that, that could have matched that in value. There was nothing that could have matched that in value. And so you come back saying, it's by grace alone. It's by grace alone. It's by grace alone. Nothing that you could give up will be worth it, would, would be worth what you're going to get. No, no self-denial could, could build a pile big enough to earn what you're going to get. No, no, no amount of anything that you could put into a heap will be able to even put a down payment <laughs> on what you're going to accept, what you're going to find. That's grace. That's knowing grace. So you live in that understanding of what is, what is saved up for you, what is coming to you, what is going to be revealed to you as you sit there and accept that grace. And when you come to that level of faith, that Takor can give it to you. Why doesn't he give it to you beforehand? For that story about the rice paddy. You know, if you haven't done the work of purifying the mind and the heart, he'll give it to you and it'll last a day or two. Your bliss will last a day or two, but then it'll run out through all the holes that you've got in your character. And then he'd have to fill it up again. And then you'd, you know, then it would be a bondage. <laughs> Pretty cool bondage, but it would still be a bondage. So he's trying to teach you in the practice that you, that you do through your gratitude of this grace to purify the heart. You know, in the words of Titus or in, as of Paul saying here, training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life in the present age. You know? In his letter to the church in, the, in, uh, in Rome, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay, that's very important, you're justified by the level of your acceptance of grace, your faith in that grace, and being completely covered by that grace. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
So it's a grace that, 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 we, that we stand on. It's our platform for our security. You know, we talk about that all the time. We know, or I do anyway. When I come in and sit <laughs> before talk or, and you know, there's always that tinge, you know, just because of my life, I guess, I don't know, myself, of like, oh God, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, and so I had to go through this little ritual of inside imagining that I'm putting on a chutter of, of grace, you know, so I can put it on and Tukor doesn't notice any of my foibles, any of my faults, because he's, he's given me the proper clothing for the, for the ball, as it were. You know, so you sit there and you put on that cloth of grace and then you can let go of yourself. Let go of your weakness, let go of your struggle. And you can know that all is well between you and the beloved. And then you just go on standing in that place and rejoice in the hope and glory of God. Rejoice, be happy. Be carefree, throwing back to mother's words in the beginning. You know, accept the gift she's given to you. Now eat and be merry and live with no worry. Be, live a carefree life. More than that, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through this Holy Spirit that he has given to us. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who have been devoted to them. It's a very important thing. It's grace that nourishes you, a grace that gives you your sustenance. Don't try the things that are obviously not working for anybody else. <laughs> you know? All these self-help gods that are out there, you know, we go read their books without knowing anything about their character. You know, you read a book on marriage by a guy that's been divorced three times, <laughs> but he's got nine degrees, you know, that taught him about marriage. <laughs> it's like that, though. The world is like that. You go out and read all of these self-help books, you know, these, these guys, How to Become Rich. Well, they're not rich until you buy their book on how to become rich. You know, it's a catch-22. So you have to be aware where you're looking. When you sit down and look for a, a spiritual teacher, Google's not a good place to do that. You know, Google's not a good place to do that. You know, so, so be wise in the way that you make these choices. Sit before God. God is real. You may not know it. You may not believe it. You may not have a faith in it. Take a chance on it. That's all you have to do. You've got an impossible task, and maybe for you that's even believing in God. All right. No problem. Ramakrishna's got you covered. He says, if you, don't know, if you don't know if God exists, pray to him anyway. Say, God, I don't know if you exist. But if you do, you know, it sure be nice to see you. <laughs> it sure be nice to understand. So I'm going to leave us on this last verse. This one is written in 1 Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. 
So you see this beautiful guide to practice here that we haven't seen Takor, at least I imagine most of us haven't. We haven't seen him, haven't had that experience, and yet we're called on to have faith in him, this impossible thing. So we sit down and we ask with earnestness, give us that faith. We stand in it and bathe in it and wash our hope in it, and that hope pr produces a joy in us so that though we have not seen him, we can love him. And though we do not now see him, we believe in him and we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So in that, in that grace, in that acceptance, in that knowing, do the following this week. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that it will be brought to you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so you also must be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So you see, your life is a response to a graciousness for having received graciousness. <laughs> it's a response. It's a reaction. It's not something that you've done and accomplished. It's what will naturally happen to you if you earnestly sit in the presence of God and ask with an open heart, not counting on what you've done and who you think you are and what you think you're able to do and accomplish, leaving that completely behind. You're sitting it down to be touched by love so that you can be reminded what image you carry within you so that when you walk out the door, it will reflect in the world around you. And you will become God's gift to everyone that you love and touch and serve. That's the nature of grace. It's yours for the taking. It's like the wind everywhere around you. Put up your sail. Make a little bit of effort in your spiritual practice. And with his foot in that door, God will take over and give you a bliss that will be beyond your senses. Grace to all of us. Take a few moments and meditate if you like on those things or pray.